words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. What's a good image for God's kingdom? What parable can we use? It's a really interesting question. I wonder how we would respond to that. When Jesus asked that question, the answer was very obvious. Everyone who was listening to him was looking for a restoration of the kingdom of David. So in our First Testament reading, we heard about the story of the beginning of David. And from that point on, he was the high point, the golden age of the kings. And the kingdom of God was, well, when he was king, despite all his flaws. I like how uh, the whole point of the story is that God looks in the heart, not, not on the outer features, but the scribes then had to throw in there, but actually he was really good looking as well. Because that's really important in our leaders. And one of the people I, was, I listened to is in a wheelchair and he was commenting that it's very difficult to see anyone in wheelchairs in leadership positions. Uh, there has been one president in, the, in their entire history, FDR, and you never saw his wheelchair in the entire time that he was president because no one would vote for somebody in a wheelchair. That was probably pretty still true today. So his time, David's time, that represented the best time. That's what the kingdom of God was about. That's what people were looking for. The kingdom of God was when all who live in the presence of the living God under the law of Moses without fear. And that meant, for them, an end to Roman rule, an end to the corruption of the high priest and the temple leadership, an end to Herod and the other Roman sycophants, including the Jerusalem elite, an end to the harsh taxation that led so many families to lose their land, and an end to the mass impoverishment and the enriching of a few Jerusalem-based families. And on the flip side, it included, well, a restoration of the land back to the families who traditionally owned it. A restoration of the true temple leadership and the true temple worship, and not the sham that many felt was going on in Jesus' time. A restoration of the Lion of David, and a time when all had more than enough to thrive on. That's what the Kingdom of God was. Kingdom of God summarised everything that they longed for and one day, one day soon, would fight and die for. That was what the Kingdom of God was. And so when Jesus starts telling parables about seeds, that would have been a little confusing because they didn't need parables. They knew exactly what the Kingdom of God looked like. But by the time Mark was writing the story, everything had changed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple had been razed. And hundreds of thousands of Jews had been killed or enslaved in the Jewish rebellion. So this comes from the Arch of Titus in Rome, celebrating his great victory and the destruction of Jerusalem. That dream of the kingdom of God, the restoration of David's kingdom, was but a faint dream. So how then were Mark and the people he was writing to, or writing for, 
How were they to live? How did they understand what the kingdom of God was? Were they simply to meld into Roman into the Roman Empire and play it safe? Or were they to join the revolutionaries to take up arms, to continue the struggle? Or was there another way? Last week we looked at the Trinity again. And we looked at the relationship within the Trinity. A relationship that we uh, that that I suggested might shape how we live our lives. And I looked at how if we have a hierarchical understanding of the relationship within the Trinity, then we live in a hierarchical worldview, and when we have a different understanding of the relationship within the Trinity, that shapes how we might live our lives as well. And then we explored the traditional image of a non-hierarchical or equal relationship within the Godhead. And that is wonderfully portrayed by Rublev's icon, with Jesus in the middle and the Father and the Spirit on either side. The relationship within the Trinity is traditionally understood as a relationship marked by mutuality. And that mutuality is defined by words like generosity, compassion, completeness, wholeness, shalom, aroha. And we might use the word love. Now the importance of this relationship is that we, as followers of Christ, are invited into the heart of that relationship. We're invited as followers of the way to live out this relationship and out of this relationship in our everyday lives. Our lives are supposed to be marked by mutuality, generosity, compassion, completeness, wholeness, shalom, and aroha. That is Mark's third way. But then I asked how we lived that out using our experience of Tepohiri, our church constitution, and some of the current discussions and controversies in Tauranga. And we immediately saw how hard it is to live that out. When we stick, get stuck on the issues that are important to us, we immediately retrench away from mutuality and back into our own positions. And we hold them hard and firm. There is no mutuality in those moments. And it's incredibly hard when we feel passionate about things to bring any kind of generosity or compassion or completeness or wholeness or shalom or out of heart to those kind of discussions because we are defending our positions. We can't have the conversations. And when we do that, well, what happens to the kingdom of God, I wonder? I've recently read a book uh, by a Quaker called Parker Palmer, who uh, I think get this, the Quakers get this stuff much more than anyone else, uh, which is why the rest of us view them with suspicion. Um, and uh, so the book was around circles of trust, which is one of the ways they uh, kind of discern big life decisions, but it's also, in many ways, how they also make big decisions for, for their whole church community. 
And in those communities, when in a circle of trust, uh, the issue is laid out. And so if somebody's trying to discern something, they will lay out the issue and then people will ask them questions that will help that person hear what they are saying but also explore the issue for themselves. And he said one of the things they have to keep in mind whenever they are in a circle of trust and in fact in any of their conversations is that I do not have the truth and neither does the other person have the truth but the truth is found in the conversation between those two positions. The trouble is for most of us whenever we have those conversations we don't really listen to what the other person is saying because we are too busy trying to work out how to respond. That's the hard bit. It turns out this Kingdom of God stuff is quite hard. Which brings us back to our CD parables from today. One of the things we can say about Jesus is that he is constantly trying to shake people up. He is trying to knock them out of their assumptions about God and about life and what it means to be the people of God. He is constantly inviting them and us to live bigger. Metanoia, seeing the world with a bigger mind, having our minds blown. That's what's going on here. So in Mark's Gospel, the stories we've just heard are the last two stories in a big block of teaching that goes right through Mark 4, his first big block of teaching in Mark's Gospel, which is pretty unusual for Mark's Gospel, because mostly Jesus is a man of action. And they're all about seeds, every single one of those stories. So we got the last two, and they're both well known, and well, they're a little bit confusing if we're honest. So the first story was about a farmer who goes out and sows some seeds and then he goes away and he comes back and voila, there is a harvest. And he has no idea how that happened. It was really, once the seeds were in the ground, all up to the seed and the soil. And I've got to say that's quite encouraging. Because a lot of the time I'm not very sure how many seeds I have sown. Because this kingdom of God stuff is quite hard. But if I can manage to plant one, then the rest is up to God. It's not on me. I can join in the work as much as I am able. But the kingdom of God will continue anyway, even when I am struggling, defending my position. God's kingdom takes what I can do, the few seeds that I can plant, and does the rest itself. And that is quite encouraging. And then in the second story, we have the story of the mustard seed, which, well, again is a well-known story. Mustard seeds are well-known for their health properties and are used a lot for cooking. I use them when I'm doing Indian cooking and uh, just chuck them in there just for fun, uh, and uh, they are um, used by uh, lots of people um, in winter. So you kind of harvest your crop and then you'll plant mustard seed over the top of it. And, uh, and that then kind of re-nitrogenizes the soil, 
neutralizes the soil, something like that. Uh, and uh, but it also deals with some of the bugs, so it's an organic way of farming. So I've this week talked to two parishioners who used to use mustard seed until quite recently. One of them, uh, every winter, would plant mustard across their property. And uh, Matthew kind of talks about it uh, turning into the greatest of all trees. It's not, it's a scrubby little plant. And uh, he obviously had no idea what a mustard seed did. did. Uh, he got quite carried away. Uh, Luke goes for a compromise and calls it a shrubby tree. And Mark just says it what it is. It's a shrub, it's little, but it is big enough for, for birds to nest in its shade. The other thing about mustard is it's, it's a weed. Like once you've planted it, you will never get rid of it. It just grows all over the place. In places where you do not want mustard at all. It's kind of like gorse. You know, we planted gorse and thought that would be cool. But uh, it turned out not, because it just kept growing all over the place. It didn't stay in its neat little hedges like it did in England. And it grew all over the hills. That's what mustard seed is like. So mustard seed is incredibly useful and a nuisance. It just keeps reseeding itself, growing in all kinds of places where it was never intended to be. And that also is a bit of a relief. But if that's what God's kingdom is like, self-seeking, growing in places where you really don't want it, because it's a bit of a nuisance to have it there, well, that takes a lot of pressure off us. Because God's kingdom, God's way is hard. It's not easy to live this life of mutuality. And yet, the way of God keeps self-seeking and growing in places, even when we don't want it there even when we didn't think it was possible. So these parables, well, they shake us loose from our certainties. And they invite us to be a lot less sure about ourselves and our positions. The parables say to us that the kingdom of God is a lot less describable than we think. Those first hearers, when Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? They would have been going, what do you mean? We all know what it is. We know exactly what the kingdom of God is. But 40 years later, they were going, we have no idea anymore. Everything that we held to be true and that we placed our hope in has gone. There is no possibility of that. And it's taken 2,000 years until there was any possibility of that. The parables also teach us that, well, luckily, the kingdom of God is not about us. And it's not about what we do. We are simply invited to join in the work of God. We have a role, but the kingdom grows even while we sleep and carry on with our everyday lives. We are not in control. Mustard seeds have a bad reputation for germinating in all the places that people don't want them. You can't control the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, in the end, is not ours to define, which is why Jesus told, taught in parables. 
wasn't trying to define it, he was trying to invite people into it, to experience, to live it. And he was trying to help people see that the kingdom of God is happening all around us, just as seeds are germinating all around us. And finally, the fruits are much more important than the structures. The fruit of the kingdom is communities of justice and peace, lived and marked by Trinitarian mutuality, marked by generosity and compassion, completeness, wholeness, shalom, aroha, the aroha of God. So today's seed stories offer some hope and relief. The kingdom of God is mostly about the work of God, not about us, which is lucky. And we are like the sower who carried on with life, unaware of what God is doing, even when the little seeds were able to grow. So what might we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable would we use? And how have we experienced that? Maybe the kingdom of God is like a gorse bush, growing in unexpected places and sharp and prickly. What is the kingdom of God like for you? Maybe I invite you to turn around and have a quick conversation with your neighbour. What parable would you use?